0: You may be seated. <clears throat> it is necessary. It is necessary. The Webster Dictionary defines the word necessary as absolutely needed as required. For example, food is necessary for life. Another definition in Webster's, there's a number of them, another definition of necessary is of an inevitable nature. For example, death is a necessary feature of the human condition. In this cursed human condition, death is inevitable. Or another definition of necessary necessary means logically unavoidable. Logically unavoidable, a necessary conclusion. Our passage this morning revolves around necessity. Divine necessity. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, page 1033, if you have a pew Bible. And I will warn you this morning, I hope you can settle in for a fun one this morning as we do something a little bit different. For our visitors, and that is we're going to turn to probably 10 passages. And I'm going to give you the, the page numbers for all of them, but it's going to be fun to, to be turning as we go. But our text this morning that we're expositing will be Luke chapter 9, two verses, verses 21 and 22. But we're going to read verses 18 through 22 of Luke chapter 9. And when we come to verse 22, I want you to look for divine necessity, a a specific word that indicates necessity. Okay? Luke chapter 9, let's start reading in verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone... The disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and, the, and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Look at verse 22. Where is the word of Necessity. The Son of Man must, must. He must, be, he must suffer, he must be rejected, and be killed and raised up on the third day. The Son of Man must. It is a word of absolute necessity. It is a specific Greek word, day, translated in the New American Standard, I think must is a good translation. Because this word, this specific Greek word, is a word of divine necessity. It's compulsion. It emphasizes, when you see this word, you're going to see the sovereign plan and purposes of God that cannot be thwarted, that must happen. And so what is stated here about... The person and work of Christ is a necessity, a divine must. Listen, the Christ is not an optional way to save us among many, Jesus is the only way, divine necessity. So this morning, I want to look deeply at just what was necessary for sinners like us to actually be called saints now. What was necessary for our salvation? And so you're going to, you might say, hey, where's the application here? Look, Jesus is the application. We're going to see Him for 50 minutes. And then we're going to apply it as we come to the Lord's table. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on. You're going to have to move quickly this morning. We're going to answer two questions of this text this morning. Number one, what was necessary? And number two, why was this necessary? It's simple. What was necessary and why was this necessary? First question, okay, what was necessary? For sinners to be made saints. There's a two-part answer. Number one, there's a necessary person. And number two, a necessary work. Okay, what was necessary? A necessary person and work. Now, in the text and from our Christmas sermon, we were really pleased that Peter answered correctly. We know he did that through the Spirit. That when he answered the question, who do you say that I am? Peter said, the Christ of God. And so we must have the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, for our salvation. Last time we learned that the Greek word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. It's a kingly term. And so we learned that Jesus, this, this one standing here who's asking this question, He is the final king. He is the final Davidic king who will fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the king of Israel. And he will come. And we heard that this one would be a real man. He would be born of Mary, but born of a virgin, the son of the Most High God. We heard from the voice of Elizabeth when she met Mary, pregnant with baby Jesus, she, uh, Elizabeth, speaking of baby Jesus, says the the mother of my Lord and refers to the baby in the womb with the term for Yahweh in the Old Testament. And then we learn that the Christ of God from Zacharias is the horn of salvation, right? A mighty warrior who's going to run through the enemies of the people of God. And He's the horn of salvation from the house of David, that He would be the one who would accomplish redemption for His people. He would forgive our sins. He would demonstrate the mercy of God. He would be like a sunrise from on high that would shine the light into our darkness and the shadow of death, and He would guide our feet in the way of peace. He is, number one, the Christ of God. That's the necessary person. But Jesus turns this and, 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 and throws us for a, a loop in the next verse. Notice what he says of himself in verse 22. Look at the title he gives himself. Peter says he's the Christ of God. Then Jesus says in verse 22, the Son of Man must. The Son of Man. This is a unique title of Christ This is what Jesus calls Himself. No one else dares to call Him this. Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man. It's His favorite self-designation. It's used over and over time in the Gospels, especially in Luke. The first time we see this in Luke's account is in Luke chapter 5, verse 24. Flip back a couple of pages. Here we go. We're going. Verse 19, where Jesus begins to speak of himself as the Son of Man. A necessary person, the Christ of God and the Son of Man. Verse 19, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So these four friends really trying to help their their friend to get healed. So they bring in their friend before Jesus. Verse 20, seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. You. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason. They're smart and they're right. Who is this man? Jesus is asking that question. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, You got it all wrong. I'm not really God. No. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. The title, the Christ of God, is a kingly title of authority and power. Yes? The title, the Son of Man, is a divine title of power and authority. It's taken from, directly from Daniel chapter 7. So, keep your finger in the book of Luke. And turn to page 891, if you have a Bible from the back, to Daniel chapter 7 and find verse 13. Here we go. Let's hear those pages turning, or the phones. The title, the Son of Man, is connected, that's why Jesus uses it, to His authority to forgive sins. And the Pharisees and scribes are right to say that who can forgive sins but God alone? So the title, the Son of Man, for the religious leaders and certainly for Christ and those who knew the Bible, would bring them back to this magnificent vision that really is the pinnacle for all of the book of Daniel. A vision of the Christ of God coming one like a son of man at His second coming in power, at His second coming in glory. Clearly, it's the second coming of Christ. When all the beastly nations of the world are put under the thumb of the Anointed One. And the beast himself is destroyed. And we pick it up in verse 13. And Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven one like a Son of Man was coming. And He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him, that is, listen, to the Son of Man, and to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so indeed, when you hear the term son of man, you're right to think son of man, kind of son of Mary, he's a real human being. But really, the son of man, while it does indicate his humanity, is more of a term indicating the authority and divinity of this one than maybe any other term in the Bible. In the Old Testament, so let's just talk about this in in Daniel 7. Let me just get right to it. The description of one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven indicates that this one travels on the clouds like Yahweh does. This is a symbol of divine authority. For in the Old Testament, without exception, God alone rides on the clouds. Further, in, this, in chapter 7, Daniel is one like the Son of Man, right? This one like a Son of Man is being served by all the peoples, nations, and men from every language throughout the world. Peoples. That word serve in Daniel is paying reference to a deity, It is translated with the idea of worship. This is worship. What mere man is going to come upon the clouds like Yahweh and is going to be worshipped by a whole earth and is going to receive an everlasting kingdom that covers the whole earth? A man will receive the kingdom, indeed, but more than a man, the God-man. The Son of Man. So in chapter 7, verse 14, the Son of Man is given a kingdom. Now take a look. Hopefully you're in Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 27. This is fascinating. Verse 27 says this. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And so, the Son of Man in Daniel 7, a few verses later, is equated to the highest one, a definitive reference to the Most High God, Yahweh Himself, embedded in chapter 7. This is a term of deity. And who will be given the kingdom? The saints, the saints of the Most High God. And so, this is why Jesus connects the title, the Son of Man, in Luke chapter 5, with authority to forgive sins. One like a Son of Man is the authority of God alone, He's the one who can forgive your sins. But listen to me carefully. I want you to see that the necessary person here was the Christ of God, the Messianic King, the Son of Man, the conquering King, the glorious eschatological figure, the Son of Man in His second coming who would come in power and set up His kingdom. They're not wrong. He's the Christ of God. This is the mighty warrior. This is the conquering king. This is the son of man. Daniel chapter 7. That's what makes what Jesus said about him so absolutely mind-blowing to the point where he says, you're right, but you misunderstand the timing. They didn't even say that, but you misunderstand some things. I'm about to pull the veils back. Something that was revealed in the Old Testament, but you're not seeing it. You may not see it for a while. In fact, keep silent of it. You're right, Peter. It's been shown to you correctly that I'm the Christ of God. I'm the one coming on the clouds like the Son of Man. I will win in history. I will be glorified in power. But I'm going to tell you something. Verse 22. And I want you to listen and keep your mouth closed. Which Peter has a struggle with. We'll see that in the transfiguration passage. And that leads me then secondly to the necessary person Number two, what is necessary? A necessary person, and then a necessary work. There are four necessary activities of the Son of Man for Him to accomplish. Are you ready? To accomplish Daniel chapter 7. That is, if He's going to have a group of saints... gathered to worship and to serve, and they themselves having dominion and winning in history, then something shocking needs to happen to take these sinners and to make them saints and to set up His kingdom in history. Four things. Divine necessity. Back to Luke chapter 9. The Son of Man must, number one, suffer many things okay right now he's done a flyby to the disciples to all the religious leaders to very very few could were grasping this a conquering king the son of man suffers how does that work He's the victorious one. Number one. He must suffer many things. Many things. This is before his death. The son of man Jesus. Must suffer many things. And I think this suffering of many things. Includes his whole life. Is wrapped up in that. Suffering. The fleeing from the bloodlust of Herod, even as a little baby. Being tempted in the wilderness, hungering and thirsting, 40 days and 40 nights. Rejected by his hometown, going to preach at home and getting chucked off a cliff, attempted. Being misunderstood by his family members, his brothers and sisters, The Son of Man does not have a place, the text says, shockingly, to lay his head. The agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal of a close disciple by a kiss, the illegal trial, the rod on the back, the mockery of that robe, the scourging when he was ripped open, the crown of thorns. He must suffer these things to make you saints and to set up His kingdom. But, He must suffer, He must be rejected. This rejection, the text says, is by the elders, by the chief priests, and by the scribes in verse 22. This is the leaders of Israel, the group that made up the Sanhedrin. And we've been seeing that all throughout the book of Luke where the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling at the disciples. Why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he eat with sinners? Chapter 6, verse 7, the scribes and Pharisees try to trap him to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. And he healed on the Sabbath that they might find reason, the text says, to accuse him. Luke chapter 7, verse 30, the text says that the Pharisees and the lawyers reject God's purpose for themselves. And they did from the beginning because they weren't even willing to be baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist. Oh, they pretended to love him in order to gather information against him. Think of Simon the Pharisee who invited him over to dine with him, but gave him no water to wash his feet, gave him no common courtesy, no kiss for greeting, did not anoint his head with oil, had no heart for Jesus. Jesus. But the woman wept on his feet. The leaders did not see their need for salvation. They did not see the necessity of Jesus Christ. They did not love him. And so Jesus says, I get it. I'm going to change my ministry. Luke chapter 8. Next chapter, he begins speaking to all of the crowds and especially to the leaders who represent the people in parables. So the seeing they might not see. And he begins to train his Group his small group, his twelve and even an inner three to prepare themselves for the trip down south as he sets his heart in Luke chapter 9. The leaders having rejected to them, re- rejected Jesus Christ. It was firm in their collective heart. There were exceptions like Nicodemus praised God. But as a whole, Jesus came to his own but his own did not receive him. And if you think the confrontations with the leaders of Israel are intense so far, you haven't seen nothing yet. And in fact, check this out, and I want you to turn to see it in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 66. This is really, I think, the culmination of the prediction of Christ being rejected by the leaders. And in fact, you're going to see the two titles Christ of God and Son of Man, used together, just like they are in our passage, I think for a reason. So Luke chapter 22, verse 66, When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the, there it is, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, what further do we, need? Uh, do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. It was absolutely necessary for him, number one, to suffer many things, Number two, and be rejected by the leaders. And indeed he was. And that's necessary because his rejection led, number three, it is necessary for the Son of Man must be killed. The Christ of God, the Son of Man, be killed. Yahweh killed? It's passive. There's a sense in which, of course, when you're hanging on the cross, your death is quite passive. Passive tense. You say, was it the cross? Was that in his heart? Verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. I think there's certainly hints of the manner of death in which he would die right in the context. Death upon a tree. It is necessary that the Son of Man be killed in order for you and me to be made saints and for the kingdom to be established third i mean fourth the son of man must be raised up on the third day i think they would have understood that this means that jesus would be killed and that this is speaking of him coming up from the dead on the third day because they just they have a conceptual model of this look at verse 19 they answered and said, "Well, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So, just like the cross is after and refers back the resurrection, the the concept of resurrection is in the minds of the disciples. They understand that Jesus is claiming and be raised up on the third day, some sort of death." And rising again like Jeremiah or something coming back from the grave. It is necessary for your sainthood, so that you could be saints that received the kingdom for your salvation, that the Christ of God, the Son of Man, be raised up from the dead on the third day. What was the nece- what was necessary? A necessary person. The Christ of God, the Son of Man, in a necessary work. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the leadership. He must be killed. And He must be raised again on the third day. Why? Why? Leads us to our second question this morning. Why? Was this necessary? And allow, say, Holy Spirit, show me the glories of Christ. Prepare me for the family meal. Why was this necessary? The other day I was talking to my son Micah, who was in a Bible study, and a question was asked by someone. Why couldn't, I mean, if God's all powerful, why couldn't He just say, You're forgiven? You're forgiven. He's all powerful. It was a legitimate question that was asked. Why was this necessary? I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, because of Scripture's predictions because of the Scripture's predictions. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. On the road to Emmaus after Jesus has risen from the dead. And I want you to find... Verse 25, Jesus said to the men, on the the disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking with them, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now watch this, same word, day. Was it not necessary? Was it not necessary for the Christ? To suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Which comes first? Suffering or glory? Suffering before glory. And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. And so we're going to have time to look at just one. And I want you to take your Bibles as we look back to Scripture's predictions, and you're going to see all four of the necessities in our passage in this one passage at once, in my opinion. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, don't check out. Kids, don't don't say to yourself, I can't get this. You can get this. You can get this. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Now, in my Bible, Isaiah 52, verse 13, it has the heading right now, the exalted servant. That's interesting. Look at it in verse 13. Let's just read. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. You know why? Because he's the Christ of God. He's one like the Son of Man, right? He will be. But then it's just a shocking turn. So quickly. Verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Wait a minute, I thought this one was going to be highly and lifted up and now all of a sudden he's marred more than any other man. Verse, 50, uh, verse 1 of chapter 53, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. Stop right now. Let's have you stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And you need a break from this sermon. So let's stand, let's stretch. It's intermission. But I want you to come now to the Word of God. I want you to worship. Holy Spirit, come help us. Let these words hit you like this is the first time you've ever read them. For he grew up before, verse 2, before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty. One like a son of man? No majesty? That we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He must be rejected. He must be rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He must suffer many things. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He must be killed. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation the leaders, and frankly all the Jews. As for his generation, who considered, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due? The stroke was for the people. Who considered it on the day of Christ? No, they didn't. He was rejected. His grave was assigned with wicked men Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, and there was there was nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Oh, look at this: hints of the resurrection. He will see his offspring. You're his offspring. You're the joy that was set before him. If you go through it, you'll see them. You'll see your bride. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. That's the resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous one. My servant will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, oh, there's glory coming. Therefore, I will allot Him a portion with the great. And He will divide the booty with the strong, because He poured out Himself to death. And He was numbered with the transgressors. And He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. All four of the divine necessities find their fulfillment in Isaiah 52, 13, and Isaiah 53. We can go to passage after passage. You may be seated. Number one, why is it necessary? I'll tell you why. Because of passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 that predicted. What? The prophets looked for it. Remember first Peter chapter one verse ten? As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Which is first? Suffering or glory? The sufferings before glory. Are you greater than your master? Number one, because of the scripture's prediction, it is necessary. Number two, this is necessary because of God's character. Because of God's character. Stick with me. It's a little bit of a long one here, but it's so fun flipping the passages. Good to see you. Exodus chapter 34. Turn to Exodus 34 as we unpack, because of God's character, it is necessary, these four things that we've looked at. Exodus 34 and verse 6. I want you to read this passage as you've never read it before, and I want you to see how many theologians are correct when they call this the riddle of the Old Testament. The riddle of the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. Then the Lord, now it's the Lord and Moses here on Mount Sinai. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, that is Moses. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed. Now listen to these words. The riddle of the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Amen. Right? Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What? Stop there. How is that possible? It's the riddle of the Old Testament. God is. Both loving and compassionate and gracious, and he cannot, and he must punish the guilty sinners. Because he's holy and he's righteous and he's pure and he's white and he's holy and just. How does this work? Because the Bible says very clearly in Romans 3:23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so we're all guilty in the second half of that riddle and yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished yet he's compassionate and gracious and he forgives iniquity how is this possible how can you be God according to your character be both loving and just and not undo yourself by violating one of those characteristics It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected and to be killed and to rise up on the third day. That's the answer. To the divine dilemma of the character of God. To the riddle of the Old Testament. There's no other way for God to save His people from their sins and to make us saints who will reign Because he is just, he is holy, he is righteous. He cannot wink at your sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug. He can't ignore it. He he can't just say, ah, forgiven, I'm God. Sin must be punished wherever it is found. If you sin against an eternal God, the punishment for your sin must be eternal damnation. And yet God found a way, a way, one way, by divine necessity. He set his love upon his people. He will have compassion on whom he will compassion. He desires to have compassion, to save a people, to forgive a people. But because of the justice of God, there is only one way. It is necessary that the Son of Man... Must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and raised up on the third day. Okay, how does Jesus solve then the riddle of the Old Testament? How do mercy and truth kiss together in Jesus Christ and not violate each other? But they're friends. Third, it is necessary because of the law's demands because of the law's demands. The Son of Man must deal with the demands of the law for His people. Now listen carefully. He must do this in two ways. The law in the Bible demands a perfect righteousness. First. And secondly, the law demands payment for violation demands perfect righteousness and payment for violation in other words when it comes to the law of God in the scriptures you have to do it perfectly and if you don't do it you eternally pay for it that's the demands of the law the flow out of the character of God how you doing with that you have to do it perfectly And if you don't do it, you have to eternally pay for it. You ought to be absolutely trembling if that means anything to you and if you've never heard this before. Well, in order to be saints, what's a saint? A saint is when God, actually now, he calls us saints in the New Testament. We don't earn sainthood by working for it. He calls us forgiven, righteous, consecrated ones, holy ones in Christ. in order for you to be saints and set apart to reign with him he's got to deal with the two aspects of the law first he has to deal with the demand of perfection the law's demand of perfection Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect ouch in James chapter 2 verse 10 James says If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all, James says. So clearly the law demands perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to be a saint set apart for the kingdom already and not yet. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this. The active obedience of Christ. The active suffering of Christ his whole life. When he says it's not just his death. It's his life. He must suffer many things. Supply over the years. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8. If you want to turn to it you can. 1,199, or just listen. Speaking about Christ, listen to this. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. He must suffer many things. Why? To learn obedience. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He suffered. He learned obedience. He came as a baby for one thing, to do the will of his father. He had to learn to obey as a suffering man in respect to his humanity. He walked by faith. It was necessary for him to be successful. It was necessary for Jesus not to fail Be amazed that it was necessary. Be amazed that He did it. He did it. He was a sinless Son of Man. He actually did it. Be amazed the glory of Christ. He did it for me. He did it for you. He's earned a perfect righteousness. He has a perfect righteousness that He can give away to everyone who believes it was necessary for Christ to suffer to learn obedience, to prove obedience, to be obedient so that He could be the substitutionary sainthood for sinners like us. So that He could be the pure, unblemished Lamb for sinners like us. So He supplied the first aspect of the demands of the law, a perfect righteousness. But also the second aspect of the demands of the law, which was to be the punishment, the payment for the violations. Oh, He was that too. Because we have broken the law of God. That is sin. It's breaking God's Word. And sin necessitates the suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of Man. All have sinned. Galatians 3.10, As many as are, under the, are of the works of the law are under a curse For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by some things written in the law. Is that what it says? No. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And so we are under the eternal curse of sin for breaking the law of God. And it's eternal because we're eternal beings. We sinned against the eternal God. And He's holy and righteous and just. And He must punish my sins and your sins eternally for you to be called a saint and to be set apart for the kingdom. How is this possible? What if a sinless substitute was found who could pay the penalty of sin in place? This one must be a real man because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away our sin. Man sinned. So mankind must find a substitute and the Word became flesh. But this one is fully God. He is Yahweh. He is one like the Son of Man. He has the authority to forgive sin. He's the Most High God. And it is the God-man who is necessary for your salvation? And so in six hours in respect to his humanity, Jesus hung there, having suffered his whole life, he was killed upon the cross of Calvary. And listen to me, in six hours, whatever your eternal hell would have been like, all of it. He consumed it and drank it all because he was eternal. And He drank it all, and He finished it upon the cross of Calvary. He paid the penalty for your sins. He drank the wrath of God in your place. And guess what? That takes care of the law's demand, right? For the penalty of your sin. And He earned a perfect righteousness. And now, right, there's only one more thing that's necessary. Did He actually pay for your sin? was he actually sinless would your sin die at his death would your death be finished by the death of Christ there is only one answer to that question and he must he must raise be rise, uh, rise again on the third day and if he came out of the grave your sin is gone your death is dead and now he's alive and he can give to you forgiveness through faith alone. He can give you his righteousness through faith alone, so that you can be called saints of the Most High God, set apart both now and forever to rule with him spiritually now and then physically in the millennial kingdom of God when he comes back in his glory. The demands of the law kept, the riddle of the Old Testament solved. No wonder Paul said this, for he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now as we come to the Lord's table now, we prepare.